You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Saloni Datani. Saloni is a PhD student in psychiatric genetics at King's College London and the University of Hong Kong. She has a background in biomedical science, psychiatry and genetics. And I invited her to talk to us today because of her article about COVID-19 and why the UK government changed track in its policies and why that was a wise move and something that she has been advocating for a while. And that uh, I will put a link to that article in the show notes. If you haven't read that, I advise you probably to sit down and read that first before you listen to the rest of this podcast, because it will give you some um, context on Saloni's views on this. Thank you so much for joining us, Saloni. Thank you for inviting me. It's really nice to be here. So I gather you are in Hong Kong right now. Um, Could you tell us first a little bit about the situation in Hong Kong and how things have developed there? Yeah, so um, I've been here since the start of February and um, just about a week before then we had... um, the government had started implementing countermeasures against the virus. Um, but I think mostly what had happened was that people in this uh, this country are very used to epidemics. So we had the SARS virus here in 2003. And that meant that people immediately started working from home, um, started going out less, started buying surgical masks and um, reducing contact with other people. And because of that, the number of cases in Hong Kong is much, much less than it is in um, any other country. Um, And it's sort of been rising in the last few um, days and two weeks or so. And that's partly because of um, people coming back to Hong Kong from abroad if they were there on holiday or studying there, um, in part because they've realized that it's safer to be here than it is to be there. Um, So the government's implemented a few measures um, like uh, boosts to businesses, tax cuts, and some um, income bonuses that they're going to roll out in a few months. Um, But mostly people are trying to work from home as much as they can and avoiding going out anywhere. So um, how many cases have you had and are things returning to normals? I've seen I've seen footage recently from Singapore where they have reopened shopping malls and people have begun going back out into the streets because they feel that the virus has been contained. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't remember off the top of my head what the count is now, but I think it's in the 170s. 
Um, and people are going out a bit more than they used to, but because they've realized that so many international travelers are coming back now, um, people like local people such as me and um, my friends and family are trying to stay home even more than we were when this outbreak began here. Um, and that's because we're f- the, the risk of getting it from international travelers is is quite high at the moment. Right, right. I'm actually, um, I came back to London um, on Saturday, um, on Friday morning, as um, people who are listening may not know. I've been living in Buenos Aires for the past, uh, for the past year before that I was living in India. And um, I was planning to move back to London in mid-April, to move back here in mid-April, but I decided to change my flight at the very last moment. So on Thursday night, when I heard Trump's travel ban for Europeans going to the States, that made me realize that um, it was very likely that my flight would be cancelled. I already thought there was a good chance of that, but it suddenly brought it home to me that I should, if I wanted to get back here, I should travel right there and then. So I booked the first flight I could, which was Friday um, Friday at 11 a.m. And when I arrived here on Saturday morning, the Argentine government announced that they were shutting down all flights to and from the UK and that the last London flight would be leaving on Monday morning. So I almost certainly <laughs> arrived here just in time and I crossed Um, Gatwick was about two-thirds empty, but my flight was extremely full. And I was packed into a middle seat. And of course, the air on planes is very dry, so people tend to cough anyway. (laughs) But it felt like being on a plague ship. Um, And everybody was coughing. And I arrived, I went through London, and I came here to the house and I called my friends from about two blocks away and my friend Jono opened the door for me and left the left the door open and I came in without touching anything and went straight up to this uh, to my bedroom which has an ensuite bathroom and I've been here since then and I'm not planning to emerge until Saturday so I'm in self-imposed quarantine after my international flight myself yeah that that makes sense um that actually reminds me of something really funny um just before i came back to hong kong and this was in late january one of my friends was um telling me about her experience on the plane and this is from hong kong to london um and she said that whenever somebody coughed on the plane everyone else would turn to look at them and everyone else had a had a surgical mask on already and she was um there are like big social taboos i think in hong kong um once people realize they're in an epidemic situation Mm, mm. yeah I, i i had i had a very different impression coming back to london I'm going to explain why I came back because I know that a lot of people will feel this was uh, um, a quite astonishing choice to make. Um, And we do have uh, far fewer cases in Argentina. And Argentina is now currently in quarantine 
So the entire population has been asked not to leave their houses for 10 days. And that is being police policed, even though the Argentines only have, I think they have 40 confirmed cases and three deaths currently. One of the deaths is a famous uh, saxophone player. So that has received a little more prominence. But I, um, I wanted to return anyway, and I live in a kind of quasi-family situation. I live with four very close uh, friends, very old and close and dear friends. And mm. I, I just felt that if we were going to be in a lockdown situation where uh, with social isolation, where you're mostly at home, I really wanted to be at home home with people I loved. And right. I'm so glad that I'm in that situation rather than in my room in a rented in my rented room in a shared house in Buenos Aires, which was, you know, okay, but these are not people I particularly love or have chosen to be with. And I'm just extremely happy that I managed to make it home. So that that's why I made that choice, because I know some people are wondering. Yeah, and I can understand it's it's quite difficult to stay indoors for so long. Uh, well, I th I think that it's um, I I'm actually going to go outside because we do have a very large, expansive park, a kind of heathland and um, heathland and woodland, directly opposite the house. I mean, literally directly opposite, which is very lucky. So. I go out to the front door and within, I just cross the road and the gate enter, The gate is right there entering the, the um, parkland. And it's not like a city park. It's a, um, I don't live in Hampstead. It's not Hampstead Heath, but think more Hampstead Heath style place or Richmond Park. Or it's, 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 you know, a large expansive parkland and I think that I can walk there easily while keeping my distance from everybody. So I am going to do that. But I'm planning on pretty much uh, social isolation apart from that. Uh, as soon as I get out of quarantine, that seems to me like the best strategy. I'm going to only be socializing in person with people in the house. Can we begin by talking about the British, the original British strategy for dealing with a virus and what that was and why they came up with such a different strategy from other countries. And I am still confused about what the original strategy was meant to be. And let's also talk about the concept of herd immunity and why that may not apply here. Right. So, um, so herd immunity refers to when um, a large proportion of the population is naturally protected from an infection. And that usually occurs through vaccination. So, for example, with, um, let's say, the MMR vaccine, um, people are mostly immune to it and we don't have to worry so much about it anymore because so much of the population has been vaccinated that they can't spread it around. So the virus isn't able to survive in the population for very long. Um, so the UK government strategy in the beginning was that um, 
I think at some point they had thought it's too late for us to contain the virus anymore. And therefore, we should just try to slightly minimize its impact. Um, we should make sure that the healthcare system isn't overburdened. And as long as we do that, that'll be fine. Um, we'll have the peak of um, people getting the virus maybe in a few months, and then it will go away. And the problem with that strategy was that it required 60% or so of the population to be infected with the virus. Um, so that's millions of people. And with a virus that is as deadly as this one, um, so it seems like an, a low proportion, so 2.5% approximately, who people who get it will die. Um, but in terms of actual absolute numbers, that's a lot of people who would be at risk of dying. Or And the, the proportion of people who would have severe um, reactions to getting infected are also huge. So that was the main reason that I thought this strategy was so surprising. Um, you asked about why they thought of this strategy. So I, I think one of the reasons... Uh, was what I mentioned. They thought it's it was too late to contain the virus. The second was um, that they felt that people would get tired of quarantine and so they should sort of induce it slightly and not too strongly so that people would be able to cope with it psychologically. Um, and if you want, we can talk about why I think that's misguided as well. Uh, yes, yes. Let's Let's talk about why you think that's misguided. Um, yeah, so the first point there is that um, the research that that was based on was very weak. So it was about, um, so it sort of was based on some literature reviews about how people felt when they were in quarantine. And um, the problem with it was that Firstly, they didn't compare people who were in quarantine with people who were not in quarantine during a pandemic. They only looked at the people who were in quarantine. Um, so I, I don't know what it's like for um, to be in quarantine for several, maybe four or five months. But from my experience in Hong Kong, it's it's generally panicked in the beginning when you're trying to find supplies like toilet paper and um, medical supplies. But after a while, it's not something that you feel panic about. It's, it's something that's economically damaging. Um, and I, so I think that that was misguided because it was based on very insufficient um, data. And the government, for some reason, thought that because people will be able will not be able to deal with quarantine psychologically, we should just put it off. Um, and that was also really misguided because they sort of see it as a trade-off between the psychological effects and the um, the sort of med hospitalizations and all of that when. In fact, because this is a um, this is sort of an, a pandemic, the medical costs of the disease are going to spiral exponentially, while the psychological effects, even if there are those while you're in quarantine, are things that are much smaller and they're sort of more 
um, stable over time. So, so my opinion is that they should have tried to mitigate those psychological effects if there were some, and really try to focus on actually controlling the, the spread of the disease. Mm. I mean, I think there must be psychological uh, impacts, especially for people who live alone. Right. And but even for those of us who don't live alone, um, it's it's very hard not to be able to see close friends and family. My sister is in the high risk group and she is up in Scotland. I was planning to visit her almost as soon as I arrived here. And now, of course, I'm not going to go and see her because I feel that would be too dangerous for her. And I don't want to risk exposing her. And I, you know, this is a time at which I particularly would like to see her uh, because, because I am concerned about her. So it goes against all one's normal instincts, which are when things are bad, you go and see your friends and you um, want to be together. So I think that's going to be tough for a lot of people. Also, not everyone lives. I'm extremely fortunate living outside this lovely green space. Not everyone does. I don't know, you know, to what extent uh, people who live in crowded parts of the city may be able to get fresh air and exercise. So I think there could be many knock-on effects, but especially I think for people who live alone um, and that that is a concern. But I wonder whether we will actually get more used to being to the social distancing, whether it feels more worrying at first, because there's so much other uncertainty. And on top of that, we don't know how it will feel to do this. Does that seem does that seem um, feasible to you? Um, I, I'm not sure that it could be sort of minimized entirely, but I, I completely agree that there will be psychological effects of quarantine. Um, the main problem that I had with the strategy was to think about the psychological impacts of you know staying at home and social distancing from your friends versus those of you know actually spreading it to people and having them get severe disease um, right, or potentially right. dying. I mean, that's like a huge difference in potential outcomes. Um, but I also think that we will start to see people find other ways to socialize with their friends, whether that's online through like video calls and things like that, or if it's through gaming or you know things like that, I think are likely to um, become much more popular. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing I did wonder about the herd, one of the things that I heard about heard about the herd immunity strategy uh, was that the advantage, I think there were two main advantages that people were citing. One was that if every country is following um, the same strategy from a very long-term bird's eye view, and I think it was uh, Liam Bright who brought this up, although he brought it up on Twitter and he might have been just shitposting and joking about this. Um, but if he was joking, the humor sort of went over my head and I took it seriously. Um, he said that there's a, an epistemological advantage to having at least one country take a different strategy from the others so that we can see which strategy is more effective, so that we have a kind of real-time experiment playing out. And I think that there, there 
might be some merit to that if this turns out to be a kind of dress rehearsal for a worse pandemic down the line, which is something that other people have been speculating about. But the other advantage, and I don't know what your argument here is, is that it's it's not sustainable to stay on shutdown and social isolation longer term because the damage to the economy will be so great that people will be um, people will be dying because of effects from poverty. So because of that, it's it um, it would have been better to opt for a herd immunity strategy. What do you feel about those kinds of the effects of those kinds of knock-on effects of social isolation. Um, so the, the first question, the first point that you made um, by Liam, I, I'm not sure um, if he was endorsing that view. I think he said that in practice it might not be such a good idea, while in um, in most situations it would be to have variation in how people respond to things. Um, so the problem with applying um, that here, Yes, I'll, sorry, I'll take responsibility for that. Liam was not endorsing that idea. Right. It's just an idea that was floating around out there. I think he was uh, shitposting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was like joking about it. Yeah, so the, the problem with, um, with that in this context um, is two things. The first is that we actually are quite certain about how well social distancing works. Um, We have lots of evidence from previous um, epidemics and, you know, across the world. So I I don't think that we we need to try different strategies to see how things are working because we already have that data. Um, The second thing is that um, we can't really think of countries' strategies as entirely separate from one another. So, for example, if um, if the UK opts for this herd immunity strategy, it actually means that the rest of the world has to be much more careful for much longer because we have this threat of people from the UK then, you know, reinfecting people in the rest of the world. Um, so that. That's one reason to be very wary of a strategy like that. Um, this, the other point that you made was about the um, economic effects of um, long-term quarantine. Um, so I do think that those are important to consider. Um, I sort of find it hard to believe that those effects could be greater than the number of deaths or you know, severe conditions of the disease that this will have. I think that it's uh, it's completely like the magnitude of the difference is just huge that, you know, this is so much more important. Um, but of course, there will be effects of poverty that could lead to deaths and, you know, things like that. That's important to consider. Um, I think that that's one reason that government should try to reduce those kinds of effects, such as reducing unemployment, um, reducing, you know, poverty, if needed, rationing food. Um, I, I would I would sort of predict that um, these social distancing measures won't last just as long as people think they will. Um, so the thing that's 
the thing that we're doing right now is social distancing because we don't know how many people are infected. We don't know who's infected. So we have to use these really broad kinds of strategies that affect the whole population at, at a time. Um, and that's in part because it, the testing capacity the testing capacity of um, the UK is quite low at the moment, so they're just not able to test as many people as are needed. Um, but if you compare that to the strategy in South Korea, they quickly scaled up the amount that they could test people, and that meant that they could test people just all like all across the age spectrum. They could test people who weren't showing symptoms or were showing very mild symptoms, and then they could specifically tell those people to quarantine. And I think that's what we're going to see in the next couple of months in the UK and the US. Um, Social distancing measures are a great start, but they're not something that needs to last forever. They can be much more specific when you know it when you're when you're clearer about who is likely to pass these things on. Right. And one argument that I've heard, um, a counter argument against the kind the social distancing strategy, is that we should be rather than isolating everybody in order to protect vulnerable populations, perhaps we should be isolating specifically vulnerable populations. Um, to what extent do you think that we can reliably predict who is who will have uh, severe symptoms, who will manifest with severe symptoms from the virus and who will not. Um, I, because I think the UK's official stance is that uh, at the moment is that if you are under 70 and don't have any serious underlying medical conditions, then you need not worry. Um, you need not worry at least about the effect of the virus on you personally. Of course, you should be concerned about spreading the virus to others who may be more vulnerable. Um, do you think that that, uh, can we rely on that assumption? Um, and if so, would it make more sense to simply quarantine the people who are um, in the more vulnerable groups? And can we still rely on that assumption if the NHS becomes overburdened and there are fewer ICU beds available and respirators available? Um, okay, so the, there's a few things here. The first thing is that I, I definitely agree that we should be more focused on vulnerable groups than on people who are otherwise healthy. Um, but if we just had a specific threshold, like this age limit that um, that's in place, that's sort of effectively in place in the UK, it would still lead to so many deaths and serious condition, even in young people. And I think that that's maybe something that people don't realize. So as a proportion of young people who get infected, it's not going, most of them are going to be okay. We'll have a, a sort of flu-like condition for um, maybe a week or two. Um, but because there's just so many people in that category, people who are young and middle-aged, the chances are that, you know, even though the chance of each individual person getting um, very sick or dying is low, because it's such a large population, the actual number of people who would be in those serious conditions would be very large. And that's... Um, that's one of the things that had got the government to change its strategy because they realized that um, 
with the current capacity they had for beds, for ICU beds in the NHS, they would be nowhere near able to, um, to, con- to like sort of be able to treat even young people if it was only young people getting the virus. Um, so I do think that we should focus more on vulnerable groups, but you have to remember that, um, a sort of a small proportion of a gigantic number of young people is still a very large number, and it would be much, much higher than what we're capable of dealing with. Right. You are saying that you don't think that the social isolation measures are likely to have to be in place for as long as um, as as we think. Um, what's your projection for how long you think that these measures might need to be in place? Um, maybe that's an impossible question, mm-hmm. but um, if you want to answer. So it's sort of, it kind of depends on how strong those social distancing measures are to begin with. Um, so for example, in um, in China, they were so large, like they were so aggressive with their social distancing measures towards the end of January um, that they effectively managed to reduce the number of new cases per day to almost zero um, very quickly. And now people are able to sort of go about their normal business and just have like mass testing and um, testing and quarantine for international travelers. Um, I don't think that the UK will go that aggressively on their countermeasures, um, which means that it'll probably last a longer time. But if I had to predict, it would be around maybe two months of almost full lockdown measures um, in the UK. So one or two months of that and then more partial lockdown, like working from home and sort of having much more mass testing. Um, Mm. That's sort of a that's sort of a vague prediction I have, um, but I do think that it's it's probably shorter than people imagine, as long as people are very aggressive about it now. And the reason for that is because, um, so I think maybe you know about the reproduction number of a virus. I sort of I mentioned it in my piece. Um, um, yes, but um, please explain just in case anybody um, need needs to hear it. The R not number you're talking yeah. about. So the reproduction number is um, the number of people you would expect to infect with a virus if you had it. So, for example, this the coronavirus um, in China in the beginning had a reproductive number of about 2.5. And that meant that each person who got infected was estimated to infect another 2.5 people on average. Um, and what that means is that if the if the reproductive number is greater than one, the um, the virus is likely to become sort of epidemic or pandemic if it just goes you know um, if nobody tries to enact countermeasures against it. If it keeps going at that rate, soon soon enough, loads of people will be infected like exponentially. Um, but when the reproductive number drops below one, the opposite happens. So if if I have um, the virus, I'm likely to infect less than one person with the virus. It will soon die out. And that happens also sort of exponentially, but at, on the other sort of on the reverse. Um, and that means that if 
if a country does really aggressive social distancing measures, if they reduce their reproductive number of the virus to, let's say, 0.5 or something, they can effectively drive it out of existence quite fast. Um, and I think that's that's something that people don't realize, but that's effectively what has happened in China. Do you think that there is a danger that there might be a, a second wave of infections? Um, yeah, that's so that's a good question. Um, so I guess there are two reasons that people think that there will be a resurgence. The first one is that they think it will come from international travelers from like countries that don't have good testing or screening um, and that they will sort of um, bring the virus back into existence in this population. So that's a possibility. And I think that's a good reason to have sort of quarantine measures for people who have just traveled into the country or to have really good testing for those people, especially. Um, the other reason that people think that there's going to be a resurgence is if the virus is seasonal. So they think that it will be likely to have a resurgence in the winter months. Um, and it's sort of seems intuitive because it's a cold virus so it's one of the it's one of the virus families that causes a common cold um, but I had a look at lots of the research on this and it seems to paint a sort of weaker picture so the evidence suggests that it is seasonal but not not near not near as much as influenza viruses so we can't really be certain that it will um, have a resurgence in the winter months. And we also can't be certain that it will just die out in the summer. Um, and I think that that's important to remember. So I'm not sure that I would say there's, I, I, I do think there's a likelihood of a resurgence, but I think that by that time we'll have improved on our testing abilities and our sort of treatment abilities enough that it won't be it won't be a catastrophe or it won't be like the first wave again it'll be like a very small it would be a much smaller wave i've been uh, following the figures in india talking about uh, seasonality mm -hmm. which i have a few questions about and I'm concerned because I I feel that from my experience living in India, I think that it is probably almost impossible to do social distancing there. I can't, I mean, I think that my number of close physical contacts with people per day in Bombay was just 30 times what it would be in London on a normal day. And um, I, I find it very hard to imagine how Indians would be able to contain the spread of the virus. But there do seem to be only a small number of cases in India so far, or, or smaller than expected number. And so I have been wondering whether temperature affects the virus, since in most in most of India, at least from Bombay downwards, it's Uh, warm most of the time. And the Indian government have issued an official statement saying that hot weather will not affect the um, the virulence of the of COVID-19. 
um, what is what is it that makes why are viruses why are viruses like cold and flu viruses uh, seasonal? Does that have to do with people's differing behaviors in summer versus winter, or does it have anything directly to do with effects of temperature and humidity on the viruses themselves? Um, that's a great question. Um, so I think I'll, I'll, I'll answer the first point that you made about um, why the numbers were so low in India. So I think that there might be a few things going on there. I think there's there's a strong possibility that we're underdiagnosing the number of cases there. Um, and I think that that probably shouldn't be ruled out at this point as one of the main reasons why there are so few cases there, because if you look at um, other countries like Singapore and Middle Eastern countries, they actually had a lot of um, cases of the virus. So I, I wouldn't be so sure that it's not it's not such a big deal, deal there. I also completely agree that it's quite hard to do social distancing in India, and that's one of the reasons that I'm very worried about people there. Um, my family, lots of my extended family lives in India, and that's very scary to me. Um, then the other thing that you asked was, why are viruses seasonal? Um, so it's not the case that all viruses are seasonal. Some of them are, some of them aren't, and they are to different degrees. Um, and it seems as though that's partly because of the way that they're transmitted between people. So the ones that are like um, transmitted as respiratory droplets, for example, um, more likely to be affected by humidity and temperature. Um, but the rest of this, I, I probably can't answer in too much detail. I just don't know enough about like the virus in molecular terms to say why. But I would guess that it's because of specific molecular properties of the virus. Right, right. And um, to what extent do you think we can be certain that having had the virus confers immunity for at least some uh, period? So how important do you think, even if it's not a deliberate strategy, but something that um, happens naturally as more people have the virus, do you think that herd immunity might at some point be a factor in preventing the recurrence or slowing the spread? I don't mean as a deliberately pursued policy, but as a side effect. Hmm. So it's kind of hard to say. It would actually take a... It would take several months of doing pretty much nothing to um, to sort of get to, her, to a herd immunity level. Um, so I don't think it's actually going to be a major, it's, it's probably not going to be a driver of reducing the spread. Um, and on the other question of whether people are able to um, acquire immunity to a virus, that's, that's sort of questionable. It's, um, it's actually quite difficult to know because viruses are really different from one another. And so there are lots of different reasons that you might not be able to um, acquire sort of immunity to a virus even after you've, um, you've been infected with it. And so if I, I've looked at some of the research on um on coronaviruses specifically, and specifically looking at the SARS virus, which is very closely related to this one. Um, 
And it's just that people have antibody responses to this virus. So they sort of figure out which antibodies can effectively um, target the virus. And that sort of grows um, over while they're infected by it. Um, but after that, the, the amount of antibodies that they retain in their body, it sort of drops um, sort of substantially over the next like year or so. Um, until it becomes negligible or undetectable. So that's going to vary from person to person. And it's also not necessarily an indicator that people will be protected from being reinfected. So antibodies are one way of protecting yourself from infection, but they also have other um, sort of other requirements and other things that can help you from being reinfected. And we're just not sure right now about all of these mechanisms. It's it's just too early days to say, I would say. And how hopeful are you about uh, treatments? So, for example, um, first of all, I gather um, a lot of work is being done on treatments that might alleviate symptoms. And that could be very important, obviously, if it, if it uh, allows some of the if we can alleviate the symptoms of some of the severe cases, we can then reduce greatly reduce the burden on the health system. Um, how promising do you think that some of the uh, drugs that are currently being tested for that are are looking? Um, yeah, so I guess there there are different types of treatments that um, we'd have to consider. So. Um, maybe some of your listeners won't be aware of these, so I should probably explain them. Um, so one type of treatment or therapy that people could use is called antibody therapy. So what that does is it gets antibodies from other people who have been infected. And this is, again, assuming that those antibodies are enough to um, sort of kill the virus. We can use that those antibodies to treat people who are newly infected. So we can pool people's like blood or plasma samples. We can get their antibodies if they've already been infected, and then we can use those to treat new people. Um, now that's quite expensive to do, and it requires um, sort of pooling the data from people who are infected. You might not have such a large pool of people who haven't been infected in the first place, so that's quite hard. Um, there, there's a possibility of um, sort of synthesizing those antibodies in the lab after you've um, acquired some, um, but I, I don't know enough about that to say. And then there are some other types of treatment strategies that are um, like antiviral treatments. So there are different types of antiviral treatments, and I think that that sort of it hinges on our understanding of the virus and sort of the of the available antiviral treatments that already exist. So there, although there's lots of differences between different viruses, there are also some similar properties. So there are a few um, antivirals that will be effective for lots of different viruses, but there are a few that need to be very specific. Um, and I think that we're we're already seeing. Um, evidence of some antiviral treatments that were used for other other viruses in the past that seem to be effective for this one. Um, I think it's too early to say for sure, but there are already some that have been passed into guidelines in South Korea and China um, for, for treating people who are infected. Um, so one example 
is um, chloroquine. And um, that drug is sort of used as an antiviral, but it has some large side effects. Um, so it, it may not be the best thing to use, right? Like if if you cared a lot about the side effects in comparison to the main disease. Um, but there are also some other ones that seem to be promising. And I think that because of just how many antivirals we've already produced because of other viruses, there will be a large pool of things that are already approved for different purposes. So if they show and themselves to be effective, then those treatments could be streamlined much more quickly. Um, but there's also the possibility of looking for sort of new treatments or treatments that are not even antivirals, but that um, that coincidentally affect the spread of the virus or it's like replication in our body. Mm. Um, I'm feeling so much more um, cheerful and optimistic after hearing you say all of that, <laughs> I have to say. Um, <laughs> Because uh, partly because two months really doesn't seem like very long to me. Mm -hmm. So if we're really only doing so I, strict I would say that social distancing for two be months, about a few months of like a complete lockdown, and then mm, yeah, getting more towards like how things are in Hong Kong, where we're working from right, home, right, lots of oh, Yes, of course. I I realize that I'm quite privileged in that I. I work from online, mm -hmm. although I do have some financial fears because a lot of the people who um, pay me and hire me are having um, financial difficulties as a result right. of the virus. So I may be affected, but I, I'm not urgently and instantly affected by not being able to go to, into work and having, therefore, immediately no salary coming in where I'm used to a salary coming in and I don't have dependents and a or a mortgage to pay. And I do live at home with friends. So if money dries up, I'm pretty sure they're not going to put me out on the street. Um, so I realize that I'm that it's going to be for some people it's going to be much more difficult than for others. But right. nevertheless, it's. I think it's very comforting to think of it in terms of months rather than some indefinite period that will change our lives forever, um, potentially. Yeah. Um, so I I have an upcoming um, piece with a few sort of medical friends where we're going to try to predict how long it's going to take to develop um, treatments and vaccines. Um, I don't know how how long that will take to to like fully write in, in as much detail as we want. Um, but I would guess that people have reasons to be optimistic and there are many reasons to be optimistic. One of them is that um, our, ability, our ability to understand the biology of any virus is much, much greater than it was even 10 years ago. So for example, sequencing the virus's genome took I think a month or two months um, maybe even less than that whereas it whereas during SARS it took about four months I think to sequence one virus so one virus's genome and now if you think about where we are now 
people have sequenced several hundreds of uh, virus samples from different people within a much shorter time frame. So mm. that's one reason to be optimistic. Another reason to be optimistic is that um, we have a much greater capacity of sort of understanding the protein structure of the virus and how it interacts with other proteins. And that's, again, because of sort of computational capacity. Um, sort of computational speed has grown so much in the last, like, decade or so. Um, and those two things... Um, plus the fact that this is a huge priority for the entire world, I think, are going to mean that there are reasons to be hopeful. Um, there are also lots of reasons to be cautious. So um, one reason to be cautious is if the infection sort of closes down lots of research labs, things like that, that would be quite difficult. Also, if it affected... Um, our ability to have like specific, you know, chemical and medical equipment that we need to do research or to transfer vaccines or, uh, or medicine around, that would be quite damaging. Um, and the other one is that um, when we're, when people are developing a vaccine, the main barrier, I think, to getting a vaccine approved and out there is testing out its side effects. Um, so testing out its side effects might not seem like it would take a long time, but usually you would need to test out um, people's side effects over a long period of time, such as like a year or two years, just to make sure that they didn't have any long-term consequences that could be even worse than having the infection. Um, and so vaccines in general that have been produced are very safe and that's and these regulations are one reason for that. And I'm not sure how much we could speed that that part of it up. Um, so I'm I'm very hopeful for finding vaccines. I'm not very hopeful about how quickly they will be rolled out because of safety. Mm. What's your estimate for the time? Say somebody, let's say someone hit upon a vaccine today that is going to work. How long will the will the testing process? take them at an at a minimum? I think currently the estimates are about a year that it would take to do side effect testing. Um, I think I would have to, I, I think that is possible to be changed depending on how important it is to get it out there or how, how much we care about the side effects versus the main disease. Um mm. I'm not sure. I mean, those those guidelines and things could change if this becomes a huge priority, which it might. Um, but at the moment, the, I feel that the main barrier to vaccine production is testing its safety. Right, right. I have a few questions from Twitter, which I'm going to put to you, if that's okay. Sure. The first question, I think the first question um, is somebody asks... Um, Josh K. Hello, Josh. At Osmium1999. Hello. <laughs> um, Ask, how did COVID-19 evolve? That's a great question. I, I would say that I don't have enough knowledge to talk about the specifics here. Um, but one thing that people could look at is the website called Next Strain. Um, and if you look at that, 
um, the developer of this website, who's this scientist on Twitter called Trevor Bedford, he um, he has produced this website where you could see the genomes of different samples of the virus and see how closely related they are. And using that, you can sort of make this tree of like the how the virus have, has evolved in different people over time um, and sort of trace it back to its origins. And when you look at that, it finds quite conclusively that all of them stem from this small sample of people who were um, who were in that marketplace in Wuhan. So I would say that we have high confidence that that was where the outbreak occurred. Um, when it comes to how it evolved, I think that's um, that's sort of harder for me to say, just because I don't, I haven't read enough about that in particular. Um, but I, I feel that the mainstream view seems to be correct in that it's um, it sort of evolved from a reservoir of viruses in bats, um, which eventually spilled over into humans because it was similar enough to be um, mm. to infect human cells. Right. I think that I read somewhere, is this true or not, that um, most or all infectious viruses have, um, that have, that most or all viruses liable to cause pandemics have originated in animals and then jumped the species barrier. Is that, um, is that correct? Hmm, I'm not sure, but I, I'm not sure what the comparison would be because it's hard to imagine how a virus would evolve outside of other animals. Mm, um, mm. Is the question that it's more likely for them to have, for for the virus to have come from an animal versus from a previous human virus? Is that what the question is? Yes. Yes. Um, again, I'm not really sure about that. I I I, I just don't know enough. With regard to the website, I think we should do a little bit of, of uh, brainstorming after this or when you have time over the next day and just um, put together half a dozen links in the show notes to this article, to this um, podcast episode of the best websites for people to find information um, so that they have all of those in one place. Yeah. Okay, some other uh, questions for you. Um, are there figures yet for the percentage of non-elderly people without underlying health conditions getting serious complications or dying? That's a question from uh, Dan Dennis. Um, yeah, so those figures are um, are available on the website Our World in Data. So in terms of the um, case fatality rate, which is the num the proportion of people who are diagnosed as cases who then die from the disease. Um, that seems to be at, I think, around 0.2% in young people. I would have to look that up um, to be sure, but it's around that figure. Um, and then the number, of, the proportion of severe complications is likely to be a couple of times greater than that. Um, I think that people need to realize that there's sort of, when you have a disease, even if it has just a 1% fatality rate, 
within a few, within like a month of being infected. That's huge. It means that the remaining sort of 90% are sort of going from healthy all the way up to dying within a month. That's like you have some serious complications that you could face as well as having asymptomatic cases and mild cases. Ah, you mean that people might um, recover, but they would have um, ongoing damage, permanent Um, damage? That's also possible, but that's not exactly what I meant. So what I'm saying is that um, people who get infected, they have something between being healthy all the way to dying at maybe 1% rate. And that like acceleration of like, if, if you think of a, maybe of a graph of like people versus the severity of their disease. So it goes from being healthy all the way to completely dying um, at 1%. And you have to think about how how the gradient of that like curve upwards is and how many people have severe complications. And when it's something like 1% or 2%, it actually means that lots of people are going to have really serious conditions. And that's what we see in this virus. Mm. I think that you may have, there are some other questions, but I think you've probably implicitly answered most of those, most of those questions. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have a couple of questions about the situation in, in Britain, mm-hmm. uh, which you may not be able to answer. But one question is, why is it that um, in Britain we seem to have um, fewer testing facilities than elsewhere? So, um in Argentina, they are uh, testing people um, on demand. Mm-hmm. And um, here, even NHS workers who are symptomatic are not being tested. Do you, do you know why that is? Um, that's something that I don't know very much about. But I did see something today about how many of the testing centers were doing testing for other European countries and not for the NHS. So it could be the fact that maybe the UK is sort of the epicenter of research centers in some way, and that we're not just testing people who live in the UK, but we're also testing people abroad. So that might be one reason why the testing capacity is limited. but there are probably other reasons, and I, I think I probably just shouldn't say because I don't know enough. Uh, sure. I'm also quite interested in why it is that um, people have... Uh, I, f- I feel that there are some odd things going on in the UK because I notice that... Um, I, f- I feel that fewer people are taking it seriously as far as social distancing is concerned. But on the other hand, there has been such a run on supermarkets mm-hmm. <laughs> that um, those of us who haven't stocked up for whatever reason are finding it hard to to even obtain any food. So, right. um, And I gather that was not the case in Italy, for example, in the, in the other European countries. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what's going on with it, with um, with that soci- sociologically, but I guess that's probably not a question that you are able to answer. But I thought I would mention it because it has struck me. Yeah, I think that it's. Um, I think it's possible to see um, sort of supermarkets being empty while not many people are taking it seriously. So one of the things that people are doing is sort of hoarding for the next couple of weeks. Let's say if um, 
I usually go to the grocery store. I get enough food for maybe half a week or so usually. Um, mm. This is when I lived in the UK. Um, imagine all the same people going shopping as they did before. And now a small proportion of them, instead of buying stuff for the next two or three days, they're buying stuff for the next month. And even if you had just a small proportion of people who were going shopping, um, increasing the, the amount that they were shopping by a great deal, you would still see that kind of the shelves being emptied, even if most people were not taking it seriously. Ah, right. Okay. So it would only take us, it's a per, kind of Pareto effect. Yeah. I guess. Um, people, please stop bulk buying and calm down because <laughs> some of us are a little bit hungry. <laughs> <laughs> I think there might, there might potentially be um, health benefits of the sort of hoarding that we see. So one thing is that it it means that it reduces how much you have to go out for the next few days. If, mm. if you're buying stuff for the for the next week or two weeks, it means you can now stay indoors for that whole time. Whereas if you're only buying for the next two or three days, you'd have to keep going out and probably being infecting people or being able to be infected. So there's sure. one benefit of that, but there are also consequences of hoarding unnecessarily, um, especially if, if, if people are hoarding things that are not likely to run low on supply, that's probably not a good idea. Um, mm. But it's sort of a, it's one of those things that is quite irrational at the level of the society, whereas it's quite rational for each individual person to stockpile. So if you see, um, so you mentioned, for example, you found it very difficult to find food in the supermarkets. If everyone else was, you know, stockpiling, you would also want to stockpile because you don't want to have that repeated chance of going to the right. supermarkets and seeing nothing. So right, you have right. this incentive now to hoard even when you didn't want to. Um, yes. Um, so I have to say that... Difficult. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm reporting on the supermarkets at second hand. Um, I've been trying to order food online and that has been impossible. Um, and, um, but yes, I, uh, because I'm, I'm at the moment on strict quarantine, I'm not even leaving my bedroom and bathroom suite because I've just been traveling internationally. I am facing, um, the situation that other, other people, my close friends, um, are, mostly, I think that they are taking it seriously, but they are somewhat confused as to what the best course of action is. And this is not, my friends are, um, most of my friends are not in their 20s. And they are also not, it's not that they want to go to concerts and uh, enjoy themselves and have a good time. It's It's not that, it's more that they want to help people and they have the kinds of kind of work and the kind of all kinds of also social engagements and by that i mean actually not engagements plural i mean more like social engagement helping people within your community which involve going out and seeing people in person um so you know people are still coming to visit um here at the house, uh, my friends are still traveling around London on by the tube to go to their various things. 
Many of them are still working and in jobs that could be done remotely, but are, are they still need to are being asked to go into the office. And I think that a lot of people also just have the instinct that we shouldn't exaggerate or panic that that in itself would also be dangerous. And I feel a little bit like I have this uh, feeling like I'm I'm the crazy person with my tinfoil hat on because I am telling everybody to stay home. So um, I don't know what what is the best way to persuade people that they really should be um, doing social distancing and taking that seriously. Um. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one thing that I find um, interesting about that is that it's quite normal in Hong Kong to practice social distancing once we learn of an epidemic. So, you know, people here immediately started wearing surgical masks, immediately started staying homes, universities and work pretty much shut down as soon as we heard of this outbreak that was able to be transmitted between humans. Um, whereas that's that's not normal in the UK. I think one reason for that is because uh, people here have prior experience of like SARS, which was quite recent. Um, so I remember that, and it, it you know, we we sort of have already developed these expectations of what we're supposed to do when we have when we face a crisis like this. That it doesn't seem like panicking or overreacting to actually follow through on those expectations, like to actually stay from home. Well, we've done that before. We know that it's normal. Um, we don't have to, you know, panic or overreact in order to do these things. And I think that that's something that people in the UK don't have experience of. Maybe not recently. Um, it's quite hard to get people to change their habits, and that's one reason that I think that government response is very important. Um, so there should be, when you're in a situation where people are just not used to self-quarantining or whatever, the government should really step in and do that because it's so harmful for people to just make, keep maintaining contacts with other people. Um, another thing is that maybe instead of, um, instead of focusing so much on just reducing face-to-face contacts, you could encourage people quite strongly to take care of their hygiene. So washing hands a lot, but also um, wearing a mask if they can, um, not touching too many surfaces. One of the things that we do at home is that we don't accept um, change in coins or notes. We sort of try to pay with exact amount. We don't want to spread or, you know, um, get infected by virus that's on surfaces. We clean surfaces and, like, commonly use devices like phones and stuff very often. Um, So things like that could also be done. And those reduce the the chances that you'd infect someone, as well as reducing your contacts does. Um, So if people are stepping up to do charity work, I think that's quite good. I think that they should be quite mindful of their their own hygiene while they're doing that. Um, I don't think it needs to be stopped completely, but I do think that people should appreciate lots of different ways that they can reduce their possible spread of the virus. Um, maybe mm-hmm. one of the best ways to convince people is um, 
to to sort of make them aware that they're it's not just about whether they'll be infected by it. It's about whether they're likely to infect somebody else with it. Um, so people will, it, it's in this virus, there's, we see um, transmission while people are asymptomatic. So before their symptoms onset, or even if they don't have any symptoms, they're still able to infect people. And that's extremely important. And you don't want to be the person who accidentally infected an old person and got them into a severe condition or even, you know, you don't want to be the person who infected somebody who then died. I think that kind of messaging, perhaps even strong social taboos against being unhygienic or um, visiting too many people, that's actually quite necessary. Mm, mm, yeah, harm harm reduction. I think that it's it's something that I have been thinking about a lot. I don't know if I can make this into a question for you, but maybe you can just uh, comment. Um, is that I? I'm really afraid of of uh, people demonizing each other and people's kind of fear just erupting in really extreme anger and scapegoating. It's not. Um, it's not natural to humans to exercise constant vigilance. I think that we all slip up sometimes. And so I would really, and none of us, well, you are the closest, but um, most of us are not epidemiologists. We've never been in this situation before. The guidelines here in the UK in particular have been frankly confusing. And I think that also, as I said, people are used to being kind and helpful by being with other people, by doing things that involve coming into contact with other people, that's going to be a difficult habit to break. That is definitely the case for the people that I live with personally. So I feel that we should lead by example, but I I really dislike things like um, videos of young people partying being shared on Twitter and everybody just letting out this extreme anger, I feel that that is potentially very dangerous. I mean, there may be many people behaving in an irresponsible way and we should try to persuade them otherwise. But picking on some individuals and spreading videos of them on Twitter seems to me like a a dangerous and a very dehumanizing way of dealing with that. And I would I would say that we should try to avoid that kind of level of anger and just lead by example. If you feel that social distancing is important, which I definitely do, then do social distancing and tell other people that that's what you are doing rather than getting into massive battles. We don't really need these fights among ourselves. I don't know what um, your feeling is about that. It's, it's sort of mixed. I, I think that, um, well, I think that sort of the UK and lots of Europe is sort of unusual in terms of you're not used, you seem to be not used to social distancing when it's required. And mm. maybe some kinds of, if these social taboos were stronger, it would actually be a benefit. But at the same time, I, I don't like people um, targeting individual people who are partying, let's say. I think that's maybe not a good idea and it 
can be quite psychologically harmful for them um, and can be quite violent. Um, but I do think that people need to be much more aware of these things and it should be much more of a taboo than it currently is. Obviously, that doesn't mean that these sort of viral memes of, you know, making fun of somebody who's not doing that are necessary. Um, one of the reasons for that is that I, I feel that lots of people who are not taking this seriously are mostly uninformed. Um, it's not because they're, they have bad intentions. It's not that they really want to infect other people. It's just that they don't realize how se- serious it is if they pass it on to somebody else or if they get it potentially. Even It could even affect them quite severely. I think that that's something that people don't realize. So you probably wouldn't want to just, you know... Um, target somebody because of that you you would want to inform people much more than you would want to demonize them but at the same time increasing the the amount of social taboos is probably a good thing um mm-hmm. i think my sort of ideal would be that instead of um having these like sort of outbursts of social taboos and stuff like that it would have it would be if if people developed sort of local rules as um to sort of increase their hygiene practices. So one example is, um, so I went to a meeting at my university recently, um, one of the very few times I went in to work. Um, And they had these thermometers there that they used to check my temperature while I was there. And it was slightly higher than usual, not in the fever region, but it was slightly higher than usual. And they just told me, well, we have a rule in place that if your temperature is higher than this level, you should be you should stay outside for now, and we'll come outside and talk to you when necessary. Um, and they told me not to stay in the office. And you know, in, in in the beginning, I felt a bit offended, but it's a rule that makes sense, and I'm happy mm-hmm. to follow it. Mm-hmm. And if it's something that applies to everyone, that makes total sense to me. Um, so I think having local rules like that for workplaces and things like that that makes a lot of sense and it also means that people don't get offended by it or um they'll actually comply with it much more than they would if you just said you know you're gross go away from me i don't want to be infected Mm. yep i think that's um that's true i had another point but now i have forgotten it um (laughs) Oh, yes. I think that the issue is that 1% sounds like a very small number to people. And also when they hear, for example, in Argentina, there are 40 confirmed cases, that seems like a tiny amount, given that there are 40 million Argentines. That's literally one in a million Argentines have a confirmed case of COVID-19. And... um, I can see why that is. And in the UK case, because so few people have been tested, I've seen a few people um, doing amateur arithmetic um, on how many people they think are infected currently. I've seen that only for the UK. But extrapolating from, if we think that, say, um, 1% of people die, and we know how many deaths, confirmed deaths there have been from the virus, then we can extrapolate from that to the number of people who have been infected. 
And then if we divide that by the number of weeks that the infection has been around, we can work out how many people are currently affected. And I think that the uh, figure that I saw, the ballpark figure, which was a conservative ballpark figure, this was actually simply in a tweet, and I will link to it in the show notes, um, was 78,000. So that uh, so 78,000 people are currently infected. And that begins to feel like a just psychologically a larger number. And I know that this is a potentially um, uh, potentially exponentially uh, thing that could grow exponentially if the virus had a, an R0 of two, for example. So if every person who is ill infects two other people, then you have... Um, doubling every time, which which um, will lead to a very large number of infected people very, very quickly, if it continues to double. Because, um, you know, doubling, lines don't necessarily, exponential growth doesn't necessarily continue to be exponential over time. Uh, graphs can flatten out um, or go down or slow down, etc. Um, so, I, I don't know if I have a question here. I'm just wondering how to make people take the numbers more seriously when they sound like very small numbers. Yeah, so I think there's um, there's two things there. So the first thing is that it's very hard for people to understand um, the how exponential things are. Um, so when you have a virus like this where the sort of the R0 value is about 2.5. Um, the amount of time that it takes for it to double, so the amount of time it takes on average to infect those 2.5 individuals is about four to seven days, depending on the situation you're in, etc. Um, now, if you have that repeated for many intervals, it very quickly becomes a very large number. And may- maybe many people are just not aware of that. So one example is um, Trump, for example, he, he said, well, we just have one case now, it'll be fine. And then we, we have 15 cases, I'm sure it'll go back down to zero. And by the end of the week, or the next week, it was almost at 1000. So I think that like, people just don't really understand that how these exponential numbers work, or how these growth rates work. The other thing is that um, a sort of even a small per- proportion of a very large number is a very large proportion, a, a very large number. So like I said before, even if the death rate is maybe 1%, 1% of a million people is still 10,000 people. That's a lot of people who could be infected, uh, who could die if a million people got it. So um, that's something to remember. Um, another thing that people don't intuitively understand is that um, even if the base rate of like, let's say the chances of a random person being infected are low, if you go out and socialize with lots of people, the chances that you've met one infected people, it rises quite quickly. Let's say you go to a big event or a conference or something, the chances of you meeting somebody else who's infected are actually quite high, even if the base rate of a random person being infected are low. Um, So that's something that people don't have an intuition for. Great. Thank you. 
Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you would like to make sure that people know about? Hmm. I'm not sure. I don't think so. I think we've covered quite a lot. I do want to mention briefly, and I'm going to talk about it at a bit more length elsewhere, that um, I want to encourage people at Letter, um, Letter Wiki, which is um, a project that I'm involved in. We are encouraging people to write open letters to our community about their experiences um, with social isolation, with quarantine, about their thoughts and feelings about the pandemic and the situation. Uh, So if anybody would like to share their personal experiences, we'd like to try to create a, a kind of document, a documentation of what is going on. We'd like to hear from people around the world. And, um, you can write open letters on our site and people will respond. Um, And we're also looking for people who have expertise in various areas, for example, um, who know about how to cope with isolation and loneliness, or who know about how to homeschool children, who would like to, who would be willing to respond to people's letters and queries as, as they come up. So I'd like to just encourage people to go and check that out um, at LetterWiki, and I will put a link in the show notes. And um, I will I will also be writing and responding to letters. So if you are, especially if you are isolated somewhere and lonely and you just want to, um, you would like to document your experience, you'd like to have a public journal, consider this like a kind of blog, except that all of the journals will be in one place, easily accessible. And then hopefully more people will be able to read and see them. And people will be able to write back and respond. Is there anything we haven't covered that you think is important, Saloni? Um, I don't think so. I guess we could just say wash your hands. (laughs) (laughs) Um, wash your hands. And I personally am going to be practicing social distancing for the next couple of months. Mm. Oh, I do have one thing to say. Uh, I guess the most important thing to say is use soap to wash your hands. And Mm. if you're using sanitizer, don't get an antibacterial one, get an antiviral one or one with alcohol in it. Mm. Um, Just to make sure you're not getting the wrong thing and thinking you're, you're safe. Right. Soap is much better than the uh, antibacterial hand sanitizer, right? Because it dissolves the lipid outer membrane of the virus. Am I correct? Yes. So uh, as far as I know, soap is better than alcohol with this particular virus. Um, But alcohol at a percentage of like 60 to 80 percent is also very effective. Great. Thank you so much, um, Saloni. Everybody, please uh, stay safe, stay healthy, practice social distancing if you can, and Skype with all your loved ones and go and check out our project at LetterWiki. And thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a lovely week, everyone. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine 
with a universal liberal humanist slant. Edited by Helen Pluckrose, with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for T. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. 2 for T is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.